2: this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and your stories too. There's an Old West adage that goes something like this, God created man, and Abe Lincoln freed them, but Sam Colt made them equal. Samuel Colt became America's first industrial tycoon, and his faithful wife, Elizabeth, proved herself to be no less extraordinary, making Sam Colt's legend bigger than ever and his empire her own. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, quote, Samuel Colt's life was the American story written in capital letters. On this day in 1862, Samuel Colt passed. And all of our this day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu, that's hillsdale.edu. And now on to the story of Samuel Colt.
3: Samuel Colt is born July 19th, 1814 in Hartford, Connecticut. His first five years of life are spent in privilege because of his father's business success. But from the age of six to 14, Samuel Colt loses his mother and sister to tuberculosis, and then loses a brother and another sister to suicide. At 11, he's indentured to a farmer. Colt begins reading from the Compendium of Knowledge, a scientific encyclopedia containing biographies of famous inventors. He gains knowledge of practical chemistry and becomes obsessed over fireworks and underwater explosives. Then, after one of his fireworks experiments sets his school ablaze, he's expelled. Here's William Hoseley, author of Colt, The Making of an American Legend. Sam Colt
4: came from a kind of difficult background. His mother died when he was seven. He didn't take to his formal studies, but he liked taking things apart and putting them back together again. He also liked explosives. He was kind of a prankster, and it got him in a lot of trouble.
3: After his expulsion, Colt's father enlists his troublesome 16-year-old boy as a seaman on a ship.
2: You watch your back, but you be respectful. You understand me?
3: That will be sailing halfway around the world to Calcutta, India.
1: Well, here he is. Nice, strong worker, just like I told you.
3: His father hopes that the journey will teach his son responsibility and that he will learn a trade as a seaman. But instead, the trip fills Samuel Colt with another idea. Colt is fascinated by guns and believes there's a way to make them better. It's the early 19th century. Battles are fought with sabers and single-shot muskets. Here's Ashley Lubinsky, curator at the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming explain the limited and cumbersome nature of guns at the time.
5: You had to load it from the top of the gun, and you took a whole cartridge, which was powder, the projectile, and paper, and you would end up putting it down the barrel with a rod. So, loading single-shot guns weren't horribly efficient. It would take you about a minute or so to load three shots if you were really good.
3: Holt has a revolutionary idea inspired by the giant steering wheel on his ship. He sees that the mechanisms that are used
4: to uh, steer and control these ships had ratchets. And when they rotated the wheel, that it would cock and that these ratchets would
3: hold it in place. Like the ship's wheel with axles, spokes, a barrel, and handles... Colt notices that regardless of which way the ship's wheel spins, each spoke always came in direct line with a clutch that could be set to hold it. Colt envisions a firearm with a cylinder that can turn after each shot and lock and then be fired multiple times. While on board the ship, Colt carves a wooden prototype of a revolving cylinder mechanism out of scrap wood. This is the beginning of the revolver. When Colt returns to America, he's a young man determined to turn his vision into a reality. Colt is a complex man who learns self-promotion. At an early age, the young entrepreneur developed a hustler streak. From 1832 to 1836, Colt travels throughout America as Dr. Colt, spelled C-O-U-L-T as the playbills read giving demonstrations of the newly discovered nitrous oxide, or laughing gas. In Out Where the West Begins, Phil Anschutz adds some color. Quote, Clad in a fashionable coat and top hat and surrounded by smoking beakers, wax demons, mummies, and exploding fireworks, Colt persuaded spectators to sniff a bag coated with nitrous oxide... Sam guaranteed his audience a good half hour's laugh at the resulting spectacle. Colt's mix of salesmanship with showmanship is on par with the likes of P.T. Barnum. While touring the country, Colt goes looking for investors interested in his revolver.
1: Go on, take a shot. How about another? A new revolver, works the same way. It always keeps you loaded. This is gonna revolutionize the world.
5: He is the consummate salesman. When Sam Cole would come to you and ask for money, he's so over the top and he's such a unique personality, it's gonna completely win over whoever he's asking.
3: With the help of wealthy New Jersey relatives and friends, Colt raises $230,000, the equivalent of over $6 million today, and begins manufacturing his revolver. So, what do you
1: think? Am I on something?
2: And when we come back, more of the life of Samuel Colt, who died on this day in history in 1862. Our American stories, and we continue with the remarkable story of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver.
1: So, what do you think? Am I onto something?
4: There were bugs at first. You don't want any chance that if you pull the trigger on a revolver, more than one bullet's going to go off at the same time, or even blow up the cylinder.
3: Colt improves his design, and in 1836 is awarded a patent to a 28 caliber five-shot repeating firearm with a revolving cylinder. It's called the Colt Patterson, and it's like nothing the firearms industry has ever seen. Colt is 23 years old. But Colt's new revolver is proving a tough sell. Lawmen and military are not willing to take a chance in such a new and untested design. In 1842, after six years and a production run of 5,000 pistols and rifles, Colt declares bankruptcy and liquidates his assets. But 2,000 miles southwest in the new state of Texas the Colt revolver is about to be put to the test. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Sam Colt's first large
6: sale of his revolver went not to the U.S. Army, which rejected the gun outright, but to the Texas Navy. But plagued by lack of funding and political battles, the Texas Navy nearly ceased to exist by 1844, and its Colt's revolvers then went to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers' first use of the revolvers came in the Battle of Walker's Creek in June, 1844. Jack Hayes and 15 of his Rangers were out scouting for Comanche Raiders when the Comanche discovered them. The numbers were to the Comanche liking. Chief Yellow Wolf led more than 70 Comanche warriors. What Yellow Wolf and the other Comanche didn't count on was the Colt Revolver. And every Ranger was armed with two Colts.
5: They were used to hearing the one shot go off, and then they all scrambled to load, and then the next shot goes off. But imagine then hearing bang, bang, bang. Would have been incredibly powerful and something to be incredibly intimidated by.
6: After several failed attempts at charging and overwhelming the outnumbered Rangers, the Comanche broke and fled, dropping shields, lances and bows. A Comanche chief said he would never fight the Rangers again because they had a shot for every finger on their hands.
3: On the ridge! Rifles! Then in 1846, The Mexican-American War breaks out after the constant border battles between Captain Samuel Walker and his Texas Rangers and the country of Mexico. For Walker and his men, the time it takes to reload a gun is often the difference between life and death. For every shot the Mexicans fire with their standard rifles, Walker's men can fire five. It's the beginning of a new era in warfare. Sam Walker
4: began experimenting with how to use this. It's like, what do they got? What is this secret weapon? This is something we've never seen before.
5: You don't have to have a single shot. You don't have to load the gun. Every time you fire, you've got something that you can load several rounds in.
3: On November 30th, 1846, Captain Samuel Walker writes Samuel Colt a letter that will change the course of history. That letter reports how the Colt pistol changed the way he and his Rangers fight. With a $25,000 US government contract for a thousand pistols that Walker arranged, and with the design modifications that Walker suggested, a larger gun with six shots rather than five, Sam Colt re-entered the gun manufacturing business in 1847.
4: The revolver went through the process of user influence, influencing both design and also the practical use of the thing. They tinkered with this invention.
3: Colt develops a 44 caliber, four pound, nine ounce revolver named the Walker after the man who made it happen.
1: Increase the black powder by 60 grains. Barrel to nine inches.
5: The Colt Walker is a much heavier gun, heavier caliber than Colt's original invention. But these Texas Rangers could handle that type of firearm.
3: Many consider the Walker the mightiest handgun of its day, with firepower that won't be matched for 90 years until the release of the 357 Magnum. Colt's business soars and the name Colt becomes synonymous with
5: revolvers. Sam Colt created a brand around himself. And so what he was trying to establish there was that he was the guy, he was the brand. When you saw him, you thought success.
3: But Colt's most revolutionary idea isn't in his new design. It's in how he puts it together. More than half a century before Henry Ford used mass production assembly lines in his automobile factories, Colt employed them to produce his revolvers in his enormous Hartford armory beginning in the 1850s. Using interchangeable parts, Colt's armory could turn out 150 weapons per day by 1856. The mass production allowed Colt to make his weapons more affordable to gun buyers, settling in the West. Colt's mass production achievement is only matched by the revolver's quality Samuel Colt is an absolute perfectionist
1: Now, one of these guns is not up to Colt's standard You choose Wrong It's this one See the blemish? I don't allow any imperfections to leave my factory.
3: Americans are also taken with the way in which this pistol of industrialization was itself like a small factory. It was a bullet-firing machine as opposed to a single-shot instrument. Once Colt perfected the system for mass-producing complex metal instruments like firearms, that system was readily adapted to make typewriters, sewing machines, and eventually bicycles, motorcycles, automobiles, cameras, you name it. In 1849, as the California Gold Rush begins, Colt develops the legendary 1840 pocket revolver, the single most successful pistol produced in his lifetime, with 325,000 sold by the time of his death. Most historians agree that the most serious mistake Colt makes is firing employee Roland White after he presented him with a patent on a new innovation. Powder and ball in the front, primer in the back. Reloading would be much faster. Up until this time, the shooter poured powder into each of the six-cylinder mouths, then push a bullet over the powder, and then load a percussion cap on the rear of the cylinder, making the reloading process cumbersome, to say the least.
5: Rollin White came up with this idea for a board through cylinder that would allow you to load the firearm from the rear. It's not something cold hat.
2: The fire from one shot will set off every chamber. It's dangerous. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Samuel Colt's story, The Revolver's story, here on Our American Stories. we return to the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver and now the last installment
3: of this story. With almost a complete monopoly on the revolver Colt isn't ready to take a chance on something new. Here's Mitt Romney.
6: My dad used to say there's nothing as vulnerable as entrenched success. Sunhouse of an enterprise feels it has no real competition. It becomes complacent, and ultimately it can get wiped out by a small upstart that comes out with a better product.
3: Fired by Colt, Roland White takes his groundbreaking idea to two men who intend to be Colt's biggest rivals: Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson. They jump at White's patent and gladly pay him a royalty. With this move, one of the most iconic names in gun making is born. Smith & Wesson. Samuel Colt built his business on the back of the Mexican-American War. Now it's just a drop in the bucket compared to the impact of the gold rush and Western migration. Then, in the summer of 1856, Colt marries 29-year-old Elizabeth Hart, the daughter of a devoutly Christian and affluent Newport family. Take a seat. But as the 1850s draw to a close, the southern states begin arming themselves. How can I be of service? I'm here representing some gentlemen that are dedicated to a cause. Colt has been supplying arms to the US military for years, but the military is about to be split in two. It's time for Samuel Colt to decide where his loyalties lie.
5: When you're on the outbreak of war, there's a really difficult problem that arises from firearms manufacturers. And that is the balance between loyalty and being a good businessman. In this case, this is a war breaking out in the United States between the North and the South. This isn't America and the other guy. This is their home.
3: In 1860, just one year before the Civil War begins, Colt sells the modern equivalent of more than $3 million worth of guns to the South. A risky move for a Northern businessman. Colt gets labeled a Southern sympathizer, and worse, a traitor. Sam Colt got into a lot of trouble on the eve of the Civil
4: War because he also was believed to be arming the South. But in fact, Colt supplied arms to both sides before the war. After the war began, that stopped.
3: At the outbreak of the Civil War, Colt doubles the size of his armory and his factory is operating around the clock. But for Sam Colt, the success he craved and achieved would ironically contribute to his death. On January 10th, 1862, Samuel Colt dies of gout complications at the age of 47. By this time, Samuel Colt has made and sold one million guns. His 35-year-old widow, Elizabeth, is left in control of the company and a personal fortune of $15 million, the equivalent of over 300 million today. Elizabeth keeps the business running, even as the war wages on. After losing four children and a husband within five years, Elizabeth has begun to emerge from a year of mourning. Then, on February 5th, 1864, Colt's armory bursts into flames and burns to the ground. Elizabeth stands at her window and watches her husband's vision go up in flames. Many believe Confederate sympathizers started the blaze. However, no one ever discovers the real cause. Elizabeth resolves to rebuild the armory while continuing wartime operations in an unburned wing of the building. Elizabeth Colt would also continue to innovate, eventually producing what would become the most famous Colt gun of them all, the Colt 45 also known as the Peacemaker and what we know now as the gun that won the West. It is still in production to this very day. Here again is Dr. Roger McGrath. While much has been made of the 1873
6: Colt Peacemaker, and rightfully so, many of the famous gunmen of the Old West quickly replaced their single-action Peacemakers... With Colt's new double-action revolvers in 1877, Colt offered the new revolver in a 38 caliber, which was called the Lightning, and then a 41 caliber, which was christened the Thunderer. Among the many gunslingers who quickly adopted Colt's new revolver were Billy the Kid and John Wesley Hardin.
3: When the Civil War finally ends, America is transformed in countless ways, not least of which is gun ownership. Most of the soldiers come home with a prize possession.
5: The Civil War really marks a turning point for firearms in American history with a revolver and with mass production really taking off. People were able to start buying revolvers it's really the birth of a huge movement in America with firearms people are still carrying the revolver because it's a reliable gun today
3: Colt transformed his products into icons and his Colt revolvers became fixed in the American imagination as the very symbol of Western independence The story of the Colt Company after Colt family ownership continues to be one of innovation in weaponry. The Gatling Gun, Browning Rifles and Machine Guns, and the M16. During the 19th century, Samuel Colt did for pistols what fellow Connecticut native Eli Terry did for clocks. He made guns affordable for the average American. Couple that with the spread of armaments after the Civil War and what you have is an American inheritance passed on from the 19th to the 20th century. Anchored to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Americans in the 21st century have also inherited the notion that gun ownership is a normal, solidified, and self-evident aspect of American life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
2: And great job as always, Greg, and what a story, the cult story is. And by the way, we've gotten any number of business stories from the great book by Phil Antritz, Out Where the West Begins. There's a part two, and we're going to be digging into some of those stories, too. And that's more of the cultural uh, effect of innovators there. Uh, but Out Where the West Begins, the first one was about business leaders and how they impacted the growth of this country. And it's ignored in textbooks. It's ignored in schools. I've been a business innovators and in how they've changed America, and we've done the, the Coors story, the Cyrus McCormick, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. Other stories, by the way, that we've done right here on Our American Stories, Henry Ford's, Harley Davidson's, Steinway, the story of the piano makers in New York, Sam Walton, who changed retail forever, and Fred Smith, who had an idea when he was at Yale and in college that overnight delivery could happen, and he was the founder of FedEx, and told us here on this show that everything he learned, he learned when he was in the Marines. These business stories are stem winders. No one knows what's going to happen, and as we learned from the Colt story, changed America as we know it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, Samuel Colt's story, the birth of the revolver, its story. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their free and terrific online courses. More after these messages. American stories. And now we bring you the story of an American artist whose fuzzy afro and calming voice grace TV sets not only from coast to coast, but around the world from Muncie, Indiana. Here's Jesse Edwards with our look into the life of Bob Ross.
1: If you mention the name Bob Ross around a baby boomer, they're likely to have fond memories growing up listening to his soothing voice while watching his educational painting show. Despite the fact that he died over 20 years ago, if you mention Bob Ross to a teenager, they're likely to be just as knowledgeable. Then there's everybody else in between who doesn't know Bob Ross because you're either not old enough to remember him the first time around or young enough to know about his recent viral comeback. Hello, I'm Bob Ross,
0: and I'd like to welcome you to the 21st Joy of Painting series. If this is your first time with us, let me extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your little paint brushes and some paints and, and paint along with us each show.
1: And who hasn't sat around on a lazy weekend afternoon and watched the great Bob Ross do his thing on public television?
0: Or just just drag up the old easy chair and enjoy a relaxing half hour as we play some of nature's
1: masterpieces on canvas. The mild-mannered, soft-spoken painter had a special ability to put his viewers into a trance-like state as we watched him paint his happy little trees into his beautiful landscapes. Now then,
0: let's decide. Maybe there's a happy tree, evergreen tree. He lives right there. Start with just touching the canvas. Use just the corner of the brush, just the corner, and begin pushing, making the bristles bend slightly downward. See there? Look at that. Isn't that a nice little tree?
1: And he lives right here in this brush. All you have to do is sort of push him out. Bob Ross created and starred in The Joy of Painting on PBS, where he taught viewers how to paint like he did using the wet-on-wet technique. His process involved painting his entire canvas in white before he laid down the other oil paints. While some stuffy, classically trained artists would say this is cheating, it didn't matter to Bob or anyone in his audience for that matter.
0: We'll go right up to the top of the canvas, and we'll start. we we'll just do some little Xs, little crisscross strokes, and we'll work all the way across the top. Now the color is continually mixing with the liquid white. And it creates all those beautiful variations that we want. Let me put a little more color on the brush here.
1: And although Ross died of lymphoma at age 52 in 1995 on the 4th of July, he's just as famous now, if not more so, than he was at the peak of his career. There we go. Let's
0: start at the top and work down. And that way, our sky will get
1: progressively lighter
0: toward the horizon. And that's exactly what we're looking for. In a landscape, you want things to get lighter toward the horizon and darker as they can come away from the horizon.
1: His videos have millions of views on YouTube and has over 600,000 followers on Twitch where PBS regularly marathons episodes of The Joy of Painting. That effect happens
0: automatically. You really don't have to worry about it. it, it just happens. And that truly is the joy of painting.
1: His soothing voice continues to calm people, and his endless supply of inspirational quotes like, there are no mistakes, only happy accidents are more relevant than ever. And see what happens. As you paint, you'll see all kind of things happening on your canvas, and very
0: soon you learn to use all these beautiful little things that happen. We We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents.
1: One of the first things people noticed about Bob Ross was his trademark afro. It might surprise some fans to learn that his hair was naturally straight. He chose to get a perm because he thought he would save money by not having to get haircuts. Yet, Ross later regretted the lush curly locks and wanted to change his hair back to its natural state. But by that point, his company had already included Ross's iconic fro for the company logo, and there was no going back. Give him a shake. <laughs>
0: and just beat the devil out of him. Sometimes those brushes get away and they go zoom, clean the other side of the room. That's when you find out who your friends are.
1: Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida and dropped out of his freshman year of high school to work on construction with his father. In 1961, then 18-year-old Ross enlisted in the Air Force and was put into service as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the US Air Force Clinic at Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska. I spent half my life in the military.
0: And there I had to to live in somebody else's world all the time. And painting offered me freedom. I'd come home after all day of playing soldier, and I'd paint a picture, and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted. It was clean, it was sparkling, shiny, beautiful, no pollution, nobody, nobody upset. Everybody was happy in this world. That may be how I made it through 20 years of military. There we go because I could find freedom on this canvas. There's absolute freedom here. And I think we're all looking for freedom.
1: His time in Alaska undoubtedly influenced his later work. It was in Alaska where he saw snow and mountains for the first time, both of which were heavily featured in his paintings. If you've never been to Alaska,
0: you're to go see it. It's almost unreal. I was born and raised in Florida in <laughs> I was almost 20 years old before I ever saw snow. And my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam, he sent me up there in January. Thought that would be funny. <laughs> it was funny. I, uh, I got off the plane, the first thing I did was stepped on the ice and fell on my bottom. Because I didn't know how to walk on ice. In Alaska they have ice fog. And ice fog occurs normally when it's about 30 below or colder and it covers everything, everything with frost. It is so beautiful. Trees look like they're in full foliage. So beautiful, and the light plays through it, and these, all these little ice-covered frosty things, they act like prisms, and they break up the light, and you see all colors in the trees. In the dead of winter, you can see just, oh, you have to go see it. I can't can't explain it all to you. So pretty.
1: It's hard to believe that anyone could watch this maestro at his easel and not be tempted to pick up a paintbrush. But the truth is, most of Ross's audience didn't even paint. So why do people watch? Some people just tune in for Ross's welcoming persona and positive musings about life. Others tuned in because it helped lull them to sleep, a fact that Ross was well aware of. He didn't mind. That's the name of the game. It's enjoying. You
0: really already enjoy what you do in life you do, then you'll do a good job. Mm. And I certainly enjoy what I'm doing. I spend half my life doing somebody else's thing. Painting should make you happy. It does nothing else. It should make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, <laughs> you're doing the wrong thing. Because it's fun. And if you can do things all of your life that make you happy. Needless to say, you're going to be a happy person. And you know, when, when you buy your first tube of paint, you get an artist's license. And that license says you can do anything that makes you happy.
1: He tirelessly churned out three copies of every painting that appeared on The Joy of Painting. He kept the first painting off screen and used it as a reference as he worked on the copy that appeared on the show. The final painting was completed after the episode was shot. A photographer would take pictures of these third final copies and the images would appear in Ross's how-to books. I want
0: to get you to try being creative on canvas, just to take your time and and sit down have nothing in mind when you start. Just have a good feeling and be happy and and in love with life and your world and, and sit down and begin playing. And if you feel good about yourself and the world... It'll show in your painting and all these little
1: things will happen. Bob Ross generously filmed 31 seasons of The Joy of Painting, but PBS didn't pay the artistic genius for a single episode. Instead, Ross used the show to market his brand. He made most of his money from his company, Bob Ross Inc., selling art supplies and instructional guides. The company also offered painting classes taught by artists trained in Ross's singular methods.
0: If you happen to get some of it down in here, who cares? We'll end up turning that into reflections. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Just don't worry about it. Learn how to use what happens.
1: In addition to being the sleep-inducing master that had the same effect on the brain as Valium, Ross was an avid animal lover. Peapod the squirrel could be found chilling in Ross's shirt pocket as he painted, and sometimes Ross would take a break from painting and bottle feed the squirrel for his audience.
0: And this is how hard it is to get a little squirrel to eat. That's all there is to it. Aren't they the most precious little characters you've ever seen?
1: This is surreal television.
0: Yeah. You could feed them ten times a day, and they'll always be just about this hungry. Hey, you know, I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. Okay? All right. I'm going to set him right over here and let him finish
1: lunch. And since he created those three paintings for each episode of The Joy of Painting, he ended up with thousands of works over the course of his life somewhere around 30,000 paintings. And he was practically drowning in fan letters. His popularity and ambient-like side effects on viewers caused them to send him up to 200 letters every day. And on several occasions, when a regular fan would stop writing in, Bob Ross would actually call that fan just to see if they were okay. So what happened to all those masterpieces that Bob Ross painstakingly created? He donated them all to public television stations across the country so they could auction them off and keep the money for our american stories i'm jesse edwards hey now we can wash the old brush and if you've painted with me before
0: you know this is the fun part of this whole technique we wash our brushes with odorless thinner shake them off (laughs) and just beat the devil out of them and that's where you take all your hostilities and frustrations and it's a lot of fun (laughs) there we go just have to splash the cameraman one time so he he doesn't feel neglected
2: this is our american stories by the way nothing makes me happier than seeing my wife and my little girl 13 years old in front of the smart tv painting together to whom to old bob ross videos bob ross's story here on our american stories great job as always by jesse This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators works hard to effectuate policies that allow small businesses to grow into bigger ones and thus secure their part of the American dream. And our own Joey Cortez brings us today's episode, which begins in, of all places, South America.
7: I was born in El Salvador, in a very rural area. I was about nine years old. The whole region became pretty much a war song.
8: You're listening to Jose Menivar, an American immigrant who fled the Salvadorian Civil War in the 1980s. It was a bloody civil war between a military coalition and various communist groups. And like most communist revolutions, El Salvador gained attraction amongst the farmers.
7: Our town was agriculture and that we all helped on the farm. People started coming to the town from Cuba. And they will come in, they normally will gather at the school. People will come in and listen to them. And what they were trying to do is just trying to convince them that, uh, hey, join us and uh, you're going to have all this stuff if you do, you know. Cuba had been under
8: Fidel Castro's communist control for about a decade. He sent out tens of thousands of troops and advisors around the world to expand communism. He needed allies. El Salvador was an agrarian society coffee being its cash crop it made up 95% of the country's income, an income restricted to only 2% of the population, a promising site for a communist revolution.
7: Basically, all we got to do was, you know, sign up with them and you're going to have all of this. What ended up happening is that the town started splitting, like... Some people thought it was a bad idea. Some people thought it was a good idea, and uh, even my own family—they uh, split. Um, you know, half of my uh, decided that they would join the movement, and the other half thought it was a bad idea. And so, we ended up uh, with some of my uncles being in high positions in the communist movement, and my dad and my my uh, grandpa being on the opposite side of things. My dad says that he always thought that it, it was too good to be true what they were saying. Uh, obviously, when he did not join, that's when he started getting threats. That they basically told he needed to join, or you know he was going to pay the consequence. So he ended up leaving the town because his life had been threatened. But he left us behind, mom, and there were six of uh, six of us. Yeah, in a nearby towns entire families had disappeared like nobody knew what had happened. Um, and obviously, the rumor was that they had been eliminated because they were getting in the way of this great movement that was going to happen. But Mom tells the story that um, that she could hear people talking on why we should be eliminated, I guess, and why we shouldn't, and, but I guess uh, the people agreed that they would let us go with the understanding that we had to disappear from the town. And um, one day they decided to come visit us in the middle of the night. Yeah. All those people that were joined, that had already joined the movement, they could get everything that they want from that house. They had taken everything that we that we had. And uh, apparently we were the first family that they actually didn't make disappear. Uh, but we were told that we'd better be out of there by, by by next night yeah my grandpa, my other uh, family member they still stay behind and unfortunately they didn't, they didn't they didn't make it. They killed grandma, they killed grandpa they even killed the dog. the dog was, was the first one that, to go. We lost a lot of uh, a lot of our family yeah.
8: Jose, his siblings and mother eventually escaped El Salvador and reunited with their father in Houston, Texas. They were legal immigrants, refugees, with what's called a temporary protection status. However, after almost a decade in the U.S., falling in love with this country and needing to frequently reapply for the temporary protection status, Jose was determined to become an American citizen.
7: The sad thing was that we needed to leave the country and reapply And so I got the appointment at the same time that my brother did. So we were to leave America, go to El Salvador, and they were gonna, you know, go do the physical down there. And then you were gonna go to the American Embassy, see if you were approved or not approved to come back. I must have been 21 by that time, I think and all I know is this country, and then you're leaving this country, and you don't know if they're gonna let you back in. I and mean, talk about fear for things, so. Uh, went to do the exam, and my brother passed with no problem. They found something on, on my lungs that they needed to further investigate, so I was not approved. It's make story short, it, they decided it was nothing. The doctor approved me, so now it was time to go to the embassy. And you know, and see if we got approved. So we did get approved. And I tell you, when I landed at Bush Airport, I mean I, I think that's probably one of the best moments of my entire life. Even when you got in the plane, it, it, you know, you were very happy, you were excited, but it wasn't until I walked out of those doors that, that you just fell home. You know, you see sometimes in the movie where people want to kiss the ground. I didn't kiss the ground, but man, I sure wanted to, I didn't want to look stupid, but I, I sure wanted to, you know. Uh, I remember my girlfriend picking me up on her little Toyota Corolla, and I mean, I was hugging the car, I was I was hugging her. I mean, I, I just wish more people could experience that feeling because, you know, everybody's quick to criticize this country. I just wish you would spend a week down in El Salvador or some of those countries in your whole perspective of this country and appreciation. I mean, if you have any brains, I think your perspective would change.
2: And you've been listening to Jose Menévar, and he is so right. And it's why my grandpa always took me to induction ceremonies when I was young. He didn't want to lose that appreciation in the family for what, well, well, first-generation immigrants appreciate more than anybody in the world. And to see that look and hear those voices well, it was more than my heart could bear when we continue Jose Menavar's story here on Our American Stories. we continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Jose Menévar. we left off with Jose fleeing the Salvadoran Civil War to the United States back in the 80s. Let's return to Jose's story.
7: You know, one thing my dad always told us, you got to work hard. I started as a janitor. That was my first job. My mom, she was cleaning offices. She was working in a restaurant in the daytime, full-time, and then she was working four hours at, at night. And now um, my mom uh, had become friends with her manager at, at clean office, that she would allow her to take the kids to help her out. And when I became um, legal to work, age-wise, um, I, I applied for, for the job and got the job. And, they put me to clean restrooms, and that was my first job, and I got very good at it. I it got to the point that I was given four hours to clean, I think was 16 restrooms. I actually kind of developed my own little system of how I'm going to clean the toilet, you know, what route, and, and that I managed to knock it down to about two and a half hours. It, it normally took the, the four hours that, that it was supposed to take, you know. And what was funny is um, Exxon was one of the tenants there and they had just installed locks in their restrooms. But if you were inside, there was a way to override the lock. So I would you know, stick in my books and I would lock myself inside the restroom. And there were a few times where the supervisor would come in and I could hear him trying to open me go, this damn, you know, in Espanol, this damn lock, is stuck again, you know? And it's like, I was quietly inside doing my, my homework and just studying. But hey, I, I did a great job and I just had developer Uh, a clean system where I could multitask, you know, I'm spraying the mirror at the same time, I'm wiping down the corner, you know. So I started as a janitor, and um, they changed the the top manager, the account manager. And uh, I guess I was kind of the only people that spoke English, so somehow he liked to talk to me a lot, you know. And so all of a sudden he decided to move me from what I was cleaning residents and um, another supervisor told me, Hey, Mr. Mike says that you're gonna be doing this instead. I'm like, no, man, I, I don't want it. I'm doing a good job, why are you moving, right? So, no, he said you're gonna be vacuuming. Okay. So I got very good at vacuuming, you know, uh, it was a little harder to hide but, you know, I get did my stuff. But and then about three months later he changed me again to another position. Uh, in another position. So I went through like four different changes. And I got irritated because I thought he was speaking on me. So I actually I came down and I spoke I asked to speak with him. Said, sir, every time I get good at something, you change me. Why do you pick on me? Like, you don't change anybody else. And obviously, uh, marine guide and, uh, you know, he said, yeah, you're just going to do what I tell you So I I told him, I said, next time you change me, I'm I'm quitting. Sure enough, but three months later, uh, Luis, the supervisor, okay, hey, Mr. Mike wants to talk to you again. He's going to change me. So um, I came down, you know, I'm a man of my word, so I said I was going to quit if he changed me. I'm going to quit. And sure enough, he said, uh, I'm going to change you. And I said, well, sir, I told you that I was going to quit, you know. And so I handed over my keys, and he just, you know, he got up and said, sit down. And he said, well, for the last, I don't know, almost year, you've been training to be a supervisor. Yeah. And I said, I've been doing what? Yeah, you're good at everything you do now. You know everything. So now I'm going to promote you to be a supervisor. Yeah. So that's really how my career took off. Jose proceeded to earn two more promotions
8: until he was recruited to become the VP of Operations at PJS, the Professional Janitorial Service. Eager to have a more profound impact on his employees, Jose was confronted with an unsuspecting foe, the Texas branch of the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. They had been trying to gain ground in the janitorial industry. Five of the six janitorial companies in Houston signed neutrality agreements with the union, allowing the SCIU to attempt to unionize their workforce. For some context, companies often sign these agreements to prevent unions from picketing, boycotting, and having the union organize a strike amongst their employees behind their back. Of the six janitorial companies in Houston, PJS was the only one not to sign the neutrality
7: agreement. So at the beginning, I guess I would say I was pretty neutral. You know, my views were, you know, unions doesn't sound like they're all that bad. But once we start seeing the taxes that they use, you know, uh, harassing our employees, I mean, it gets to the point that my religion tells me I shouldn't hate anybody. But it got to the point that, look, you're crossing a line, you know. You don't try to force somebody to do something that they don't want to do. I think our employees became very educated in what the union was all about, and our employees clearly didn't want to join the union. But the union did not back down. 750 and 800 bearing, okay? Two buildings, one garage with one garage exit, okay? Um, So by this time, they were trying to convince our employees to join the union, right? So one of the things that they did, they actually decided to block the exit of the garage. Remember, this is late at night. The only tenants are not in the building. Our employees are the only ones parking in the garage. They decided to block the exit of the garage with one of their vehicles. That way, everybody would just, all the cars would line up behind there, and this is how they were going to talk to them. You know, that's just wrong. People were, you know, these people are people that have two jobs. All they want to do is go home and start the routine the next day. But they won't move. They were forcing them to listen to their message. We had a company picnic here and um, we're having fun. We're playing mini soccer. We're playing stupid games. So one of the employees comes to me Hey, uh, Jose, uh, so what time are you going to raffle the other stuff? I'm like, What are you talking about? The, the other stuff, the stuff in the van. I said, what are you talking about? The stuff that we signed up uh, when we were coming in. Like, man, I had no idea what you're talking about. Can you show me what you're talking about? So we walked down the street. They had literally set up shop on the street with a Chrysler minivan. They had toasters, microwaves, you know, uh, all kinds of different appliances. And they had set up shop pretended to be with PJS and they were getting people, hey, just fill up this car and we're gonna put you in the drawing for this. Name, phone number, you know, uh, address. So they were making them fill out the information car, pretending to that that they were they were us, you know. And then obviously we try to approach them, and they're in seated I mean I guess public property. We we couldn't we couldn't do anything about it. You know, but I mean to me if you want to recruit your employees, tell them what, what you're all about and let them decide. But don't be trying to trick them. Mm-hmm. There was one time that uh, they heard that there was going to be a big rally downtown where all the PJ's employees were going to be there. And people mm-hmm. are calling, who are the employees that are going to be there? I'm not going to be there. I don't know. We, we can spy. I we'll, guess we'll find out. So then they came in and said, well, we want to go and protest. The employees are going to be protesting, right? can't tell you what to do or not to do. And one guy was going to, kind of the ringleader, he goes, well, can we come to your office, park our cars there, make some signs, and we're going to go protest the protest. And so it turns out that none of those people protesting were employees.
8: It is well documented that the SEIU hires temporary workers to protest as if they are employees of the targeted company.
7: They're not BJS are employees. They were some college kids that they had busted in from Austin or some university. You know. So, but anyway, they showed up there, and that, that was kind of kind of cute, yeah. You
2: know. And we're listening to Jose Menivar, and what a story he's telling. The Salvadoran refugee comes to America, rises up the ranks of a janitorial company, and what do you know? coming up against unscrupulous union bosses, and by the way there are good unions working together carefully and closely with employers all over this great country uh, but fair and free elections are what unions and proper representation are all about and tricking people tricking employees into signing up for a union isn't exactly the best way to do it, and by the way sometimes there are employers who don't play fair too, and when we come back More of Jose Menavar's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, we want to hear your stories, particularly your immigrant stories and your immigration stories about your family members who came here from somewhere else. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And share your family's immigrant story. Jose Menavar's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and bring you the final installment of Jose Menivar's story. We left off with his employer battling the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Let's get back to the story.
7: We had another situation at Cisco, which is a, uh, another account which we actually lost. And this is how the employees describe it to us. Uh, look, uh, you don't have to sign up. Uh, I just need to get your signature on this piece of paper. All it's saying that I try to talk to you. You didn't want to talk to me. so And then I will leave you alone. Well, what they were signing, it was a petition to petition the ownership of that building to hire a union company because we PJS was a bad company. But the way they got all those signatures, just about everybody, you know, it, basically they were telling, look, my boss, I have, you know, the... Uh, Thanks I'm not doing my job. Just sign here just to say that I talked to you. Okay, yeah, let me sign. Yeah. We got a call, uh, and and we got statements from 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 the different people. You know, because we wanted to get it in in writing that that, that had happened. But that's just many of the things. I mean I got personally got housekeeper approaching me saying, Look, these people are showing up in my house, you know. I mean they're knocking on my door. What can you do?
8: The SCIU started a smear campaign, plaguing the clients of PJS with flyers, letters, newsletters, web postings and more, alleging that the company was violating wage and labor laws. Which is odd, because many of their employees make higher wages than what the SCIU typically bargains for.
7: We lose a lot of business, okay? because. We don't want to meet someone else's price. So they'll, they'll come to us and say, look, we like you guys. We like what you say. We like what you stand for. We like your product. We like your system. But all the other genitorial companies are telling me that they can do it for 10% less. Guess what? They're not making 10% less profit. Okay? They're paying the employees 10% less than we would. And what's going to happen is they're going to keep losing employees. Turnover is going to be higher. You know, the employees aren't going to be as motivated to do a good job. So, yeah, they are 10% cheaper. But the only reason they're 10% cheaper is because the way they're treating the employee is not equal to the way we're going to treat them.
8: Doesn't sound like the type of company underpaying and mistreating their workers. So CEO Brent Southwell hit the SEIU with a defamation and disparagement lawsuit. The company lost business because of the SEIU, 12 contracts to be exact. Usually, these sort of cases are settled before reaching court, but Brent wanted to make a public example of the SEIU so that other businesses don't fall victim to union antics. Almost a decade later, delayed by union stall tactics, the suit went to trial. The jury voted in favor of PJS and demanded that the union pay the company $5.3 million in lost business and punitive damages. The first time in this country's history that a union has been found guilty of defamation and disparagement against a business. A business that has done nothing but helps their employees work towards their American dreams.
7: There was something about the janitor that I always brought me back. And it was, how do you change people's, I wouldn't say destiny, but how do you coach people that if you're good at what you do and you do a good job, it doesn't matter what it is. It might be cleaning toilets, but there's a career there. And anything's possible. We live in the greatest country in the world. Uh, The opportunity's here. You just got to go and grab it.
8: And Jose has helped make these opportunities more reachable for PJS employees. It all began with Jose personally teaching English classes to his workers. And now PJS pays a language teaching company to teach this necessary skill that helps his employees move up in the world.
7: Yeah, you can live in this country happy without English, but you're limited on the things you're going to be able to do. You're limiting me to promote you to a, to a better position because I need you to communicate in English. That's going to start opening up the door. You know that if you learn English, you're working part-time at night. Nobody's there at night, so you don't need to speak English. You know, that's fine. But if once you start learning English, I can promote you to the daytime. Daytime job is full-time. Daytime job is much easier, because the bulk of the cleaning is done at night, and the daytime you just maintain it. And you're going to make more money. I mean, it's that simple. But I can't put you as a day maid unless you're able to communicate a little bit. And we actually pay them to sit in those classes. And the way it works is, you get paid for half of the time that you're in the English classes as you go. It's 16 weeks, and if you complete the 16 weeks, then you get the other half. So literally, we're not we're not charging you to learn the English, and we're actually paying you at whatever rate you make. It. You know, if it's overtime, we'll pay you the overtime. So we try to make it very easy. Obviously, we as a company benefit as well, because some of our, my best supervisors and day mates and day keep coming out of the English classes. We want to help the employees, uh, and by helping them, we're helping ourselves, you know? Uh, by taking care of them, we're also taking care of ourselves, because you treat them right. We always say we treat them as first-class citizens. and. And there's a lot of loyalty that we have among our employees. Yeah. And that's just, to me, is very re- rewarding. You know? When you tell an employee, you know, hey, you're ready to be a supervisor, which means you're going to make more money, which means you, you're going to be able to provide more for your family. So that, to me, that's very, very rewarding. Yeah.
8: And now Jose has even more opportunity to impact lives, as he has recently been given perhaps the ultimate promotion, president
7: of PJS. It feels good, um, and the reason it feels good, okay, is because now I can actually influence even more people. You know, uh, when I say influences, look, if I can make it, you can make it. You know, uh, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, don't do things because they, nobody really takes the time to encourage them, you know. Hey, you gotta learn English, you know. Hey, hey, you got you got you got to work hard. You know, uh, it doesn't matter if the guy next door is getting paid the same thing, and you're working harder than he is. But believe me, eventually, somebody's gonna notice, and things are gonna change for you. You know, it's that type of change that I, that I that's what I love doing. Now we're to the point that almost all my managers are uh, we all started as housekeepers, and they're all been being promoted. So. I use the same way that they promoted me. I actually tell them, look, if you do this, a, we're going to promote you as a supervisor. So it's not like I'm throwing them in different position without telling them. But I actually tell them. And so a lot of people are making a good career. But they in a janitor.
2: And you've just heard Jose Menjivar's story. And what an American dreamer story it is. Comes here from El Salvador. At the height of the Civil War, the communists just destroying that great country and comes here as a janitor and ends up being president of PJS, a janitorial company with over 1,400 employees. And as always, our American Dreamer stories are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, Jose Menivar's story, here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Why Minutes. Here's Lindsay Marie.
9: When you think of sports betting, what state do you think of? I'm no psychic, but I'm guessing you were thinking of Nevada. But why is that? It has a lot to do with something called the Bradley Act. The Bradley Act was passed by Congress in the 90s. Politicians said it was to protect us from the spread of gambling, but what it actually did was protect Nevada from competition. It restricted sports betting in every state, except, you guessed it, Nevada. For decades, if you wanted to bet on the games legally, you had to go all the way to Nevada. That was, until New Jersey finally had enough. They challenged the law and hit the jackpot. The law was declared unconstitutional, putting an end to Nevada's decades-old monopoly on sports betting. When government meddles in the marketplace, they often say it's to protect us. But what really ends up happening is they change the rules, they stack the odds. Ultimately, they pick winners and losers, and we the consumers are always the losers. The Why Minutes, because why matters.
2: And to hear more Why Minutes, go to whyminutes.com. continue here on Our American Stories, and now it's time for another installment of The McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life and whose voice, well, you're sure to be captivated by. And today, Bob, who's a Marine, shares a story about his dad, who also happens to be a Marine.
10: After getting my dad settled in the living room for a short visit after my parents' divorce, my father and I sat on the couch to have a beer and watch some TV. Sitting next to him, I noticed how much he'd aged. His six-foot-two-inch frame, combined with his broad shoulders and chest, gave no hint that he'd lost any of his power. But he was heavier and softer. His hair was graying, and the creases in his face were deeper. As he leaned forward on the couch to reach his beer and cigarettes, I had to admire how formidable he still looked. He was aware of what was happening to him, but he didn't care. He had no interest in prolonging a life that he felt had exhausted its excitement and purpose. He'd become bored. There were no more wars to fight, no more women to love or children to raise. Left without these, his passion for life was diminished and his interest in life had become lackluster, so he saw no sense in prolonging it. Life had become a still photo rather than a motion picture. His coming to visit instilled some real anxiety in me. I knew what to expect from him. As the chain of command drove the hierarchy in his house growing up, it would be like that here. He'd want it that way. In his house or under his command, he was like a giant redwood tree and very little grows underneath those trees. They are so big they gather all the sunlight for themselves. He was used to giving orders and having them followed. But now I was 26 years old. I was a former Marine and a senior in college, and I'd been living on my own and taking care of myself for the last eight years. Coming to visit my home it would be my dad's turn. It would be his turn to move over. My father would tell us boys that the changing of command from father to son would be inevitable. Let me tell you something, kid, that a day will come when you're not gonna wanna do what I tell you to do, and on that day, you're gonna leave. Because if I lose control to one of you, I won't be able to control the other two. That day came when I was 18. I blocked a doorway that he was trying to pass through on his way to the kitchen. I stood in the doorway, and. My chest really expanded. I thrust it in front of him. We stood face to face looking into each other's eyes. He said, so you think you're ready to take on your old man now? Is that what this little display of yours is all about? Well, let me tell you something. At my age, I don't care anymore about winning or losing. What you need to know is I'm not gonna go easy. I'm going to get a piece of you even if I have to bite it off. You're not going to get out of this pain free. You need to think about whether it's worth it to you. Staring into his unblinking metallic blue-gray eyes, I thought over what he said and decided, Yeah, it's time to step aside and let my father go on his way. My father knew that the key weapon in, in intimidation is that just a pinprick of doubt will burst the overinflated balloon of self-confidence. Living in San Francisco in 1974 was very different than the life on the farm my father led as a young man. Life in the city was about freedom and audacity, not regulation and authority. There was nothing that was clean or sterile. Order was not part of the day's routine. And traditional roles? <laughs> well, traditional roles and values... We're best left back in your hometown." My roommate returned from work after 2 a.m. the night my father arrived and joined us at the kitchen table for a drink. Sitting around the kitchen table, my father reached into his pocket and produced an empty key ring. Tossing it on the table, he said, "'Look at that. That's something you don't see every day. An empty key ring. No more house. No more office. No more car. I left with only my suitcase. Ellie, yeah, of course. I'd already given away all my clothes. There was very little to pack. At least she didn't throw them out in the street or the driveway like she used to do. Well, She can have it all, including the car payments, house payments, electrical bill, and all that crap that goes with those things. I have my suitcase, and that's all I want. I went overseas with far less. The night after my dad's arrival, I invited my girlfriend and a couple friends over to meet him. Sitting around the kitchen table having a few drinks was an easy way to introduce my father. Sharing drinks at a bar, around a table, talking, that was his element. After everyone imbibed a few pops, he answered questions about his life, and he started to tell a story about his time in the military police. I looked over at my girlfriend sitting next to me and I started to run my fingers through her hair. I commented to her about how beautiful she looked. She didn't respond or pay any attention to me, as she seemed fascinated by the story. A phone call from a hotel to the Kingston police asking for help. The desk clerk at a local hotel reported that a woman was with a marine upstairs in her room, screaming, You murderer, oh my god, you murderer. The door was locked and bolted on the inside, and the hotel clerk was afraid of what he might find inside. He wanted the MPs and the police to come immediately. He continued, In the hall we could hear sobbing inside the room, but there were no other noises. We pounded on the door until she screamed, you murderer, you animal, help, help. I wh- wh- whipped our weapons right out, unlocked the safety, pulled the hammer back and I heard my body back and shouldered it into the door to get it open. And the three of us exploded into the room with our guns searching for a target. With our weapons locked and loaded, we quickly surveyed the room but found no one other than the sobbing woman sitting alone on the edge of the bed. She raised her arms. She's in there, she said. As she pointed to the bathroom, he's in there. I ordered the other two MPs to cover the door as I burst into the bathroom. Looking down the barrel of my forty five, I only saw a drunken Marine sitting on the floor in my gun sights. Sitting between the toilet and the wall with his arm around the back of the water pipe, he looked up at me and with a smile on his face, he waved his arm and said, Hiya, Sarge. We all had our guns pointed at him until we realized he was unarmed and certainly too drunk to stand up. I demanded to know, what the hell's going on here, Marine? With his free arm, the Marine pointed inside the toilet bowl and said, look. We all leaned forward to peer into the bowl and to our amazement, there was a small orange duckling the couple had won at a local fair swimming around the inside of the bowl. The drunk Marine said, Watch this, Sarge? With the arm around the water pipe, he reached up and pulled the cord on the water closet. The sound of the flush unleashed a torrent of screams from the woman in the room as the water was sucked down the drain. The duck, caught in the whirlpool, started swimming faster and faster against the suction of the vortex in an effort to stay afloat. The faster the water drained, the faster that duck paddled. In spite of his struggle to paddle fast enough, though, to keep him from being flushed down the drain, he was eventually sucked down the drain and disappeared. The bathroom became quiet as the bowl started to refill. Mystified, all eyes remained transfixed on the now empty and quiet bowl which had just swallowed the duckling. What the hell are you doing here? He said he demanded. Marine just sat there next to the toilet laughing so hard he could care less about the prospect that he was going to be arrested and hauled off to the brig. The woman in the other room, she just continued sobbing about her boyfriend's cruelty until the water refilled the bowl. When the water level was restored and the toilet bowl quieted down, out of the depth of the drain, the duck suddenly popped up and continued to paddle around in his porcelain pond as if nothing had happened. As the crowd sat around the table laughing, a friend approached and asked, hey, is it cool to smoke some pot? I mean, I know your dad was a Marine and military policeman and all that, but is he cool? The reality of cultural and generational clash became real clear to me now. If I could have imagined at that moment that his few days' visit would turn into his becoming my roommate for the next 18 months, I would have thrown all his clothes out on the driveway and bought him a one-way bus ticket back to my mom.
2: And you've been listening to Bob McClellan and what a storyteller. And you can just see all this in your head, and I'm sure we all see different things. But my goodness, that little duckling going down, and then the stillness and the silence. And then it an emerging, and this culture clash, the 1970s, San Francisco. Yeah, it's probably everything you think when I say that. And here comes this old school Marine to crash with his son. And we look forward to more from Bob McClellan. It's the McClellan Files. And by the way, there are storytellers like this in every community. I bumped into Bob. I was supposed to meet him and talk about this or that. I'd heard he was a good writer. I stayed with him for five hours, and I said, Bob, you need to be a regular contributor on Our American Stories. And so if you know somebody like Bob, if you are Bob, have stories that are compelling and beautiful and frightening, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. We're interested in hearing them because you are the hour in Our American Stories. We love hearing the stories from ordinary Americans. Again, The McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories.